Welcome to Amplify Inclusion. I'm Claire from Aspire. Thanks for joining us for real stories and conversations about the power and importance of disability inclusion. This season, we're excited to feature monthly interviews with thought leaders, activists, and advocates of the disability inclusion movement. We remain focused on shifting mindsets, starting conversations, and amplifying the perspectives and voices of people with disabilities. We're proud to kick off Season 3 with a two-part episode featuring Andres Gallegos, National Healthcare Attorney and Chair of the National Council on Disability. Andres is a shareholder with the Chicago-based law firm Robbins, Solomon & Pat Limited. He founded and directs the firm's national disability rights practice, which focuses on improving access to healthcare and wellness programs for people with disabilities. Andres was named chairman of the National Council on Disability by President Biden on January 20, 2021. Andres is a person with a disability, having sustained a spinal cord injury resulting in quadriplegia in November of 1996. This coming August, Andres will join Aspire and our partners at Disability Lead for a live virtual event focused on equity and healthcare. I met with Andres recently to unpack some of the main roadblocks to healthcare for the disability community. In the process, Andres opened up about his own experience and his commitment to healthcare and disability rights. Today, Andre shares his personal journey, and next time, he outlines barriers to access and potential solutions. Here's our conversation. Andres, thanks so much for joining me today. Clara, thank you for having me. So before we go any further, I did just want to take a moment to offer congratulations to you, Andres, on your appointment as chair of the National Council on Disability. Thank you. I, I appreciate that greatly. So I kid with everyone who, who asked me about that. The fact that I'm spinal cord injured for 24 years and, and use a power wheelchair, it was a good thing I was seated when I heard the news. It was just a, a complete surprise to me. And I, I was uh, thrilled for the designation by President Biden that afternoon of his inauguration. He had so many things to do. And, and one of the things he did was take time to designate me as the chairman. So uh, I was particularly just pleased. So I know, Andres, that you're doing a tremendous amount of work now at the national and local levels. So if you could tell me about a, a few primary roles or projects where your energy is most focused right now. So Claire, I, I wear two hats. Uh, even though I'm designated as the chairman for the National Council on Disability, that's just a part-time position. Uh, I'm a special government employee, which means that I can work no greater than 130 days per year for the National Council on Disability. So I still have a very active law practice here in Chicago. I am the founder and director of my law firm's uh, National Disability Rights Practice at Robbins, Solomon & Pat uh, Limited in Chicago. We have offices in Chicago and one in Glenview. And I founded the, the practice about 15 years ago to address the needs of people with disabilities primarily in accessing healthcare and wellness programs. And we represent people across all categories of disabilities throughout the country uh, with problems that they may be experiencing in getting into healthcare systems or getting equal treatment when they are uh, with their doctor, when, with a dentist, et cetera. One of the projects that I'm, I'm working on is issues in healthcare and improving access to healthcare for people with disabilities in my private practice. 
Now, when I wear my hat as chairman of the National Council on Disability, because of where we are today coming out of this pandemic and the detrimental and austere impact it's had on people with disabilities, particularly people with intellectual and developmental disabilities, I've guided our activities uh, to be laser-focused on all things COVID and making sure that we have now equity in vaccination uh, and also that we learn lessons from the pandemic and how it has affected people with disabilities, particularly people living in congregate settings. And we are, are looking at those issues as a council and in our capacity as advisors to the president, his administration, Congress, and federal leaders, we're making recommendations so that the things that went wrong don't go wrong in the future. We're also making a very aggressive push, a health equity initiative for all peoples with disabilities, all categories of people with disabilities. So those are just uh, two broad areas that, uh, that I'm involved with. And I'll tell you, it's been a, a personal and professional passion of mine. As I mentioned, I'm, I'm spinal cord injured 24 years, uh, quadriplegic as a result of an automobile accident. And after I was injured, I received the best care at the then Rehabilitation Institute of Chicago, which is now the Shirley Ryan Ability Lab. Well, that, that level of care there, that level of attention spoiled me because I thought that if I went to my doctor or, or to any other hospital after that, that I would receive the same amount of care and attention. And, and that was incredibly naive because what I found is I'm not receiving the same level of care as somebody who's not disabled. And when it comes to medical issues and health issues, that is just wrong. And I learned quickly it wasn't happening to me, but it was happening to others like me. Uh, and that's why it was important for me to, to take this on and to use my skills and knowledge as a lawyer to give some purpose and meaning to why I was injured. And I, I think I, I used it uh, for the betterment of all to, to establish this practice and, and address healthcare issues. I, I do really want to revisit some of those experiences that you just expressed. I was curious um, if we could kind of go back a little bit further to start. I know that before your career in law, you also served a number of years in the United States Air Force, correct? That's correct. That's correct. Yeah. I spent 14 years in the United States Air Force. I enlisted uh, in the Air Force when I was just 17 years old, graduating high school. Knew that I wasn't ready to go to college. I wasn't disciplined enough. I was too busy having fun through my high school years. Uh, and boy, looking back, it was the best thing I ever did. I was irresponsible, but responsible enough to make the right decision. And the Air Force is, is what, what I needed at the time. And I spent 14 years. I worked my way uh, while I was in the Air Force through college and attained uh, a Bachelor of, of Science degree in, in business management from the University of Southern Mississippi and uh, the Air Force put me through my first two years of law school. I got out of the Air Force uh, to finish my third year full-time and then transitioned to civilian life where I came up here in Chicago uh, to practice law. Yeah, it was, it was just an amazing experience. I traveled the world. I met my wife while we were in Japan, uh, courtesy of the United States Air Force. Did you always want to be a lawyer? Was that kind of something you had in your mind from early on? So it's interesting. I, I have family members. I have an uncle who's a lawyer, and uh, I have an older brother uh, who's a lawyer. And I know I wanted to follow in those footsteps, but I, I, again, at 17 and listening to the Air Force, I, I didn't know how to get there from there. But the, the path started to crystallize uh, while I was in the Air Force, and, and certainly the doors opened up to allow me to, to go to law school 
while I was still in the Air Force, which is just amazing. So yeah, I, I, I think that was always in the back of my mind, but I just didn't know. I, I didn't have a plan quite then at 17 years old and how to get there. Sure, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, I appreciate you starting to share a little bit about the auto accident that you experienced later in life and how far into your law career were you at that point in time? So I was three years into my law practice and we were living in, in Wisconsin and I was driving from Wisconsin to Florida to visit my in-laws, uh, my wife and, and my two kids. At that time, their ages were eight and five. Uh, they were in the car and the tires blew and we were involved in a rollover. It was just the scariest moment uh, of my life. And, and certainly it was just devastating. And uh, by the grace of God, I was the only one that was injured. Well, I should say my daughter broke her elbow, but beyond that, just cut some bruises for for everybody else. But I was the only one that was severely injured, I should say. You know, that was 24 years ago. I, there's things that happen throughout the course of a day or course of a week, course of a month, where I reflect back on, on what that was and, and living that trauma again. But, you know, we're here. We more than survived. Uh, you know, we found a way as a family to do some some good as a result of some bad. Yeah, and I just want to echo that. I'm so thankful, too, that all of your family members are, are safe and, and with us still. And I, I can only imagine how that influenced your life in so many different ways. And you sort of touched on how, in the flash of an eye, you have a whole new identity. And thinking about that quick change and the way you were experiencing the world, what were some of the initial barriers that you recall having to confront? The initial barrier was was a mental barrier because I had internalized a lot of the stereotypes, the negative stereotypes of people with disabilities. And so at the time that that happened, as I mentioned, I was three years into my law career and I, I had one classmate at St. Louis University School of Law uh, who used a wheelchair. But other than that, I knew of no one who was a lawyer, who had a visible disability. And immediately my mind was racing, am I still going to be able to be a lawyer? I worked so hard uh, to become a lawyer. And did I lose my career at the same time that I lost my mobility? And would I be accepted? Would I be able to work? So all these negative fantasies just crept into my mind. And what I soon learned was that there are many more uh, lawyers and people in the profession that have disabilities, but weren't quite visible. And I remember uh, one of the first things that I did when I returned to work, first, I, I worked for a law firm that was incredibly understanding, incredibly supportive, and helped me do whatever I needed to do in order to come back and work as a lawyer. Uh, to the credit of my clients, it, it mattered little to them if I was able to walk, crawl, or anything. They they wanted me for my mind, and that was still intact. And so. I was still able to, to give them the legal advice that I did before, and I even worked on client matters while I was still in the hospital rehabbing. That was important to me to, to demonstrate to myself that I could still be effective as a lawyer. I didn't have to reinvent what I was doing, just how I did it. I, I could no longer type, so I, I gravitated to a, a voice-activated uh, software program that types on the screen for me. And then I just had to find out different ways on how to get things done differently. And, and then over the course of these last 24 years, I've been able uh, to become a, incredibly self-sufficient and independent in my work and what I'm doing. There were restrictions. 
and barriers within the environment that I, I learned as well. When I got back to work and uh, every year, if you're a licensed attorney in Illinois, uh, you have to attend mandatory continuing legal education programs. So these are organized classes that you attend for credit. And I went to one that was held at the Drake Hotel in Chicago, the beautiful, iconic Drake Hotel that is not accessible. And while my peers were entering into the meeting rooms and the hotel through the main entrance, I had to go back behind the hotel to the loading dock uh, where they kept the garbage and enter the loading dock in a freight elevator and go through the bowels of the kitchen of the Drake Hotel and a number of different other areas of the hotel only to get access to the ballroom. And then when I did enter the ballroom, I entered from the front while everyone was seated and the program started already. There was over 150 people there. And I was the only one in a wheelchair coming in through the front of the entrance. It was as if I were on stage, just announcing everyone to look at me. At that time, it was just incredible and comfortable feeling knowing that I was the only one in a wheelchair there and I thought that I had done something wrong. And again, it, it took me a while really to embrace my disability. And I credit my involvement with an organization that you're familiar with, Access Living of Metropolitan Chicago, which is a center for independent living. It wasn't until I really connected with them uh, where I learned to truly embrace my disability and being a person with a disability and owning my disability. And I tell you, Claire, once that happened, everything opened up for me then. The, the things that I saw as barriers, I now identify clearly as problems that need to be solved and, and could be solved. And I went about not complaining about them, but looking to solve them. And that led to my you know, developing of a national disability rights practice. Uh, so yeah, so there was all kinds of things that, that I was having to deal with and having to prove, not just for me, but, but for my family. You don't lose your dreams when you become disabled. Uh, and you shouldn't lose your dreams when you become disabled. Just keep the dreams, but figure out a different way uh, to get them accomplished. Hmm. So as you've kind of moved through this over the past 24 years, a journey of self-acceptance and, you know, understanding your disability identity. Um, have you come across anything that still really surprises you in terms of the misperceptions that people have about disability? So it's, it doesn't come as a surprise because when you, when you look back at how society has viewed disability, and this is society globally, not only am I dealing with the issues of how America looks at people with disabilities, but as being from South America, from Chile, uh, from being in the Hispanic culture, look at the cultural views of people with disabilities. And to this day within South America, disability is something that is hidden. And if you have a family member with a disability, that family member is often hidden as well. Things are starting to change, but the culture certainly hasn't embraced disability and people with disabilities as readily as as one would hope. So uh, I'm not surprised given the fact that we went from the charity model of disability where people were viewed as with disabilities as, as being objects of pity and they had very little to contribute to society. And as a result of that, if the village didn't come together to take care of them, then they were to be institutionalized or, or worse, they were to be just abandoned. Uh, we went from the religious model of disability where if you had a disability, it's because somebody in your family uh, committed a sin against God, and, and God has taken this view and has decided to punish you by creating a child that has 
a disability. And then we went from, from there to now the medical model of disability that says that individuals with disabilities are to be viewed as not being capable of asserting independence or speaking for themselves, uh, but that medical professionals will always determine what is best for the individual because disability is viewed as a physical limitation. And if it can't be healed, then it can be managed in some degree. And we're evolving now into the social model of disability where people with disabilities are saying, no, wait a minute, everybody has it all wrong. That, that the limits in our environment are created by society, not created by us. We are disabled by our physical condition, not by the condition itself, but by the societal barriers that exist. The fact that there's no curb cuts, the fact that there's no sidewalks, the fact that you're making vehicles that are not accessible to persons with wheelchair, uh, the fact that technology doesn't exist to allow us to compete on equal grounds as somebody who is not disabled, the fact that you still view us as being uh, as someone that can't contribute to society, all those things are limiting, right? So with, with my knowledge of where we've been, uh, the things that I experienced today aren't, aren't really a surprise or uh, they're, they're annoying that they still persist, but you know, I'm starting to see changes, right? Because uh, there's 64 million people with disabilities in this country and in our territories. And with the COVID pandemic, uh, there's a syndrome called long COVID that is a debilitating condition. And we're just starting now to fully understand what that means. And that may create another 100,000 people or more joining this disability community. So the more people with disability, the better for us that have a disability, because then it makes it easier to be accepted as a natural part of of human condition as a natural part of life. And when it becomes personal is when people get invested in making changes and embracing disabilities. I'm so glad you mentioned that aspect of chronic illness as a disability. I think that you would probably agree that chronic illness and mental health are two of those areas of disability that often aren't considered under the umbrella and where people often don't self-identify. And there's a good reason why they don't uh, self-identify and... And, and that has to change, right? Because the prevalence of mental health today and, um, and mental health conditions is, is startling. So I, I'm dealing with, with a couple of issues, Claire, uh, on behalf of two families who have daughters that have cerebral palsy, which limit their mobility. And as a result, they use power wheelchairs. They, these two young ladies found themselves clinically depressed uh, last summer. And when they were clinically depressed, uh, sadly, they attempted to take their own lives, and fortunately, the, the families intervened in time and took them to the local hospital to get stabilized. And at, that, at those hospitals, uh, they tried placing them inpatient at, at behavioral health facilities, and they called collectively 13 different behavioral health facilities and hospitals that had psychiatric units, and they were denied admission only because... Their children used power wheelchairs, but when you talk about mental disability and mental health and disability, if you have a physical disability, what I'm finding is that, again, that segment of the healthcare industry has not embraced their federal mandates to not discriminate against people simply because of their disability. And that's something that we're tackling, and it's just scary to me that that still is going on. Definitely, and it in April, you recently published an op-ed titled Misperceptions of People with Disabilities Lead to Low-Quality Care. So what was your motivation for writing this piece? 
the motivation, Claire, was anger, frustration, and outrage. Next time, Andres expands on his recent op-ed and the study that inspired it. The study revealed that over 80% of physicians in the country view people with disabilities as having a low quality of life. And that how physicians view people is how they treat them. Stay tuned for part two with Andres. And click the link in the episode description to register for our upcoming live event. Until then, be a part of the inclusive movement by rating and subscribing to Amplify Inclusion. This episode was co-produced and engineered by Subframe Sound. This season is made possible by generous contributions from First Bank of Highland Park and members of the Aspire community.